Well, good morning again. Uh, welcome. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy House. Really glad you're here. Really glad that uh, you all on the live stream are joining us as well. We've been in the book of Romans for several weeks, uh, and we've finally gotten into the part that really is the basics of living the Christian life. Uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8, those three chapters really are kind of the building blocks of what it means to, to live the daily Christian life. Uh, we've, we've gotten through chapter 6, uh, which in summary, it, it tells us we need to know who we are in order to be who we are, that who we are is one who through faith in Christ has died with Christ, died to the old life, died to sin, and has been raised to a new life in the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That, that is who we are. And because of that reality, that sort of mystical union uh, bet- between us and Christ, uh, we now can live this new kind of life. And this new kind of life, at least one, one of the ways that Paul describes this, this new way of living, is to live under grace. The old way was living under the law. The new way is living under grace. And it's such a radical just transformation of one's life, that it's hard for us to understand it. Our default is to live under law and to think that Christianity is merely law 2.0. And Paul does his very best in Romans 6 and the beginning of Romans 7 to help us understand, no, this is a completely new operating system. Last week he used some illustrations to explain uh, the way in which things have changed. He, he let us know that our obedience now, instead of being obedience to an external code, is now obedience from the heart. It's an internal thing that happens in the, in the Christian's life. He also described this life under grace as being a freely chosen enslavement to God, the sort of comprehensive obedience of every part of our lives to God. And then he explained it to be a, a fruit, that our obedience is, is not the root of, of our relationship with God. It is actually a fruit of the relationship that we now share in Christ. But evidently, that wasn't enough to explain this new operating system, this life under grace, because in chapter 7, the first six verses, Paul gives us yet another set of images which really kind of make up a comprehensive image And so what we're going to see him do is weave together death, remarriage, and fruit. Death and remarriage and fruit. It's kind of like, it sounds like a a dinner party game where you get three clues and you're like, what do these have to do with each other? But I think as we walk through this passage, we'll see they indeed weave together. Death, remarriage, and fruit. So Romans 7, 1, or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So this is the image of of death. He said something similar back in Romans 6, where he was telling us that sin no longer had power over us because we had died. That because of our identification with Jesus, we have died and died. No longer sin has power. So this was in Romans 6, 
verses 10 and 11. He said, For the death he died, he's talking about Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That's, a, that's a, the Jesus verse. And then verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so a similar way of thinking. If, if I'm united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection through faith in Christ, then I have died with Christ. And there's some implications of that. And one of the implications is I, I, I'm dead to uh, sin, but also I'm dead to the law. That's what he's saying here in verse 7-1. Now, Law and sin are like a package deal. And, th- and this is why he's talking in, in similar terms about sin and about law. If you remember back in Romans 5.13, he said, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So you may be thinking, feeling, doing things that are sinful, but if there's no law, you're not aware of it for the most part. But when you put those together, this sin and law, you're very aware of it, and you're very aware that you're under the condemnation of sin. Think of it this way. If I asked you, is driving 100 miles an hour a crime? You'd have to say, well, it depends on where you're driving. If you're driving on the Autobahn in Germany, you can drive up to 190 miles per hour. So driving 100 miles an hour on the Autobahn is not a crime. But if you're driving 100 miles an hour in front of my house on Route 9, it is a crime because there are laws against that. The speed limit in front of my house, I think, is 45 miles per hour. And if you're driving 100, you are committing a crime. Now, this law is not arbitrary, right? If you drove 100 miles an hour down Route 9, it would be dangerous to you, other drivers, pedestrians, cats and dogs. I mean, it would, it would not be good. And so it, it, it's not just an arbitrary law, nor is God's law arbitrary. God's law actually comes from His character. And we, His image bearers, are supposed to be reflecting His character. So if God is a truth teller and He does not lie, then it's appropriate for there to be a law that says, Thou shalt not lie. And so this isn't just some sort of arbitrary thing that God says, huh, I wonder what I could come up with, ten laws, huh, that'd be fun. No, it comes from His, his character. And so when we sin, we're, we're not only just breaking rules, we're breaking relationship with God. But we wouldn't know that as clearly as we could if we didn't have the law. That's why law and sin are a package deal. And so Paul is saying, well, if you died with Christ in your union with Christ, You're dead to sin. You're dead to the law. You're dead to the whole package. Um, Think of it this way. What if you were driving 100 miles an hour in front of my house and you had a wreck and you died? The police officer is not going to give you a citation for driving 100 miles an hour. You're free from the law. You're free from the law of a 45-mile-per-hour speed limit. And so this is something along the lines of what Paul says. If you're dead, both sin and the law and that whole package that sin and law is has no power over you. Now, this new identity 
doesn't just include death, thankfully. <laughs> if that's all he had to say, you're dead in Christ and now the sin and law has no power over you, um, that, that, that would you know, be something. But, but there's much more that he has to say in this passage. And this is the second image, that of remarriage. So verse 2, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul's saying, think of your breakup with the law, sin package, as a breakup from a horrible marriage. You're in a horrible marriage with your husband, law. And everything goes fine unless you sin. And when you sin, you're then condemned by your husband, law. You also cannot get out of this marriage. And so you find yourself waiting for husband, law to die so that you could get out of that marriage and marry another. Finally, the day comes. Husband, law dies, and you're free to marry another. Except in the case of the Christian the Christian dies, not the husband. Um, this is what he means in verse 4. Likewise, okay, so now he's comparing it to the Christian. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Notice the identification language again. You died to the law, how? Through the body of Christ. You have been united with Christ through faith in Christ, and because of that you've died and therefore, you have died to this old husband, this old marriage law. And now that you're dead, you can remarry. So this is the next part of verse 4, right? He says, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So here your identification is not just with Jesus' death, your identification is also with Jesus' life. And because of your unification with Him through faith, you now are free to marry another. And another is Jesus. You're free to marry Jesus. Um, the King James Version says it this way, Therefore, my brethren, ye also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now notice that you've, you've been able to, to leave your marriage, your union with the old code of condemnation. But now you're remarrying a relationship with God. You're not remarrying code 2.0. You're not, you're not remarrying a bunch more rules that are just better than the old rules. You're now marrying God. You're in union with God through your faith in Christ. This is life under grace. This is life under grace. You were once under law. You were under the written code. But now you're in union with God through Christ Jesus. Um, the result of this new union is new fruit. The result of the new union is new fruit. Look at the, 
the next part of verse 4. So, so far we've read three, three different parts here. The first part, Likewise, my brothers, you've also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So you've died and you've been able to leave this old marriage so that you may belong to another, to him who's raised, been raised from the dead. Now you're remarried to Jesus in order that we may bear fruit for God. So there's the three images put together, death, remarriage, and fruit. Now fruit doesn't, isn't always spoken of uh, in the Bible as fruit from trees. It's also spoken of as fruit from the womb. Luke one forty two, this is Elizabeth saying to Mary, the mother of Jesus, she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. We don't usually talk like that here. We, we, you, know, you see one of the moms and you're celebrating Mother's Day, you're like, oh, look at the fruit of your womb. That's a, that's a lovely child, right? We don't, we don't say that. But the Bible does use that kind of verbiage. And this was sort of a package deal, right? You get married in the ancient world. There is no birth control in the ancient world. You get married, you start having sex. Guess what? You're most likely going to start having children. And, the, and those, those children are going to be the fruit of this union that you now have with your husband. You don't have direct control over that fruit. You can ask those who are struggling with infertility right now. And they will let you know. We're, we're participating in the means that is required for us to bring about a child, but we're not having a child. But the fruit is a result of participating in the means. Uh, this is a, a picture of our sanctification. <laughs> that our sanctification, our, our being made more like Jesus, is, is, is like that. It, it, we don't have direct control over it but we have control over the means. We participate in this relationship with Jesus. We're united with Him. And now we can produce fruit indirectly because of this new relationship. Paul explains it this way in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So you see, I'm talking about the old union with the written code. What, it, what was produced was produced fruit for death. So it's like in your previous marriage, you were having the baby of death. Now in your new marriage, in union with Christ, you are now producing a whole different kind of fruit. And that fruit is described here by Paul in three different ways. And we'll get to that here in a, in a minute. Uh, the first time I was exposed to this image of the, the, the death to one's spouse, the remarrying of, to Jesus, and the bearing of good fruit from Romans chapter 7 was in a book that I read called True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. And I... Every time I've ever picked up this Romans 7, 1 through 6, I, had, I was clueless. I, I, I don't know what this passage said until I read some of this book. And here's Schaefer's comments on Romans chapter 6 and 7. He says, This passage points out our high calling to put ourselves by choice in the arms of a rightful lover, our bridegroom, 
in order to bring forth fruit in the external world. But it also warns us that, if it, is po- that, that it is possible, even after we are Christians, to put ourselves into the arms of someone else and bring forth, forth His fruit in the world. It's possible as a Christian to be bringing forth the same kind of fruit now as we did before we were Christians. Why? Because we are yielding ourselves to the wrong one, specifically to the old master of ours, the devil, Satan. Let us repeat it very gently but with a keen edge. It is possible for me as a Christian to bring forth the child of someone else instead of my rightful lover, instead of my bridegroom. That is to bring forth into the external world the fruit of the devil. And so he's describing this. Okay, you've you've died with Christ to this old husband, law. And you've now been raised with Christ to be in this new union with Jesus. Why are you going back to your ex? Why are you bearing fruit with your ex? And so Paul giving us this kind of sobering uh, moment (laughs) Of why would we go back, similarly to when he in Romans 6 says, don't go back to the old taskmaster sin. Here he's saying, don't go back to the old ex-husband law. Now, this new fruit that can be uh, produced in this new union with Jesus, again, has these three different elements here. He says in verse 6, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. Let's look at each of those. We serve. We serve. I think this is important because all this identity talk can start to feel very introspective. And we can take Romans 6 and, and we can start to, to think, you know, really Christianity is, is sort of like a, a therapeutic religion. It, it tells me who I am and it, it causes me to have this sense of inner peace in, in my heart and that this is what my Christianity is all about. And, and so is there an inner reality? Absolutely. Do we need to know what that inner reality is? Absolutely. But it needs to bear the fruit that is outward facing. And so if all we're doing is, is trying to use Jesus for our therapeutic needs, we're missing it. And so that identity should then overflow in fruit. And part of that fruit is serving. And so it's, it's outward facing, it's serving God, it's serving people in the church, and it's serving on mission in the world. And so Christians are outward-facing, not, not because that's all they are, but it is because of the inner identity that they've been given, of being dead in Christ and raised in Christ, and now are serving God, serving in the church, serving on mission in the world. Notice that they serve in the new way. It's a way. <laughs> It is comprehensive. This, this new identity, this new reality that is the, the, the new covenant, all this new stuff, right? It's comprehensive. It's affecting everything we think, everything we feel, everything we do. It's a complete transformation. Roman, uh, Romans 12 will tell us uh, later. And so it, it, this new fruit for God is, is, again, not just us, oh, we have a better list of rules now. It's... Rules 2.0, and we just try harder than other people. That, that, that's not what's being taught here. 
It's, it's a comprehensive transformation of our lives that bears the fruit of outward-facing service. But also notice that it is of the Spirit, right? He says we serve in the new way of the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit. Partly what's happening when we unify with Christ, or through Christ, uh, we're, we're unifying with the entire Godhead. We're, we're unifying with the Trinity. Now, we're a son or daughter of the Father through uh, God the Son and are indwelt by God the Spirit. Again, this is not Rules 2.0. <laughs> this is a union with God that has been brought about through Christ and by His Spirit And the Spirit is the one who is bearing the fruit. If you've ever read Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's it's not the fruit of Justin. It's not the fruit of Jake. It's not the fruit of Laura Lee. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But it is something outward that's being displayed in their lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. These these things are being displayed in the lives of the people that are Christians. But but it's being accomplished by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is directly producing the outcome. Last week we said God is creating obedience. In the Old Covenant, He was requiring obedience. In the New Covenant, not only is He requiring it, He's creating it. And this is a big part of how he's creating obedience, by by allowing his spirit to come and live inside of us and empower us to serve in the new way. Again, uh, Francis Schaeffer describes it this way. He says, on the basis of the finished passive work of Christ, that is, his suffering on the cross, and on the basis of the active obedience of Christ, that is, keeping the law perfectly through his life, the fruits are there. They are there to flow out through the agency of the Holy Spirit through us into the external world. The fruits are normal. Not to have them is not to have the Christian life, which should be considered usual. There are oceans of grace that await. Orchard upon orchard awaits Vineyard upon vineyard of fruit waits. I I love that passage. You you can just sense the the infinite potential to bear fruit. And why is it infinite? Because it's being accomplished via the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is infinite, who dwells inside of us. Because of our union with Christ, we now can bear fruit for God. Now, the question that comes up is either, what's my problem? You know, <laughs> why am I not bearing this glorious fruit as much as I, uh, that passage seems to indicate? Uh, what, is, what is wrong with the Christians in the world? What, what, what's going on here? Listen to how Schaefer explains what gets in the way of bearing that fruit. He says, there is only one reason why they do not flow out through the Christian's life, and that is, is the instrumentality of faith is not being used. This is to quench the Holy Spirit. When we sin in this sense, we sin twice. We sin in the sin, and this is terrible as it is against the law and the character of God Himself, our Father, 
But at the same time, we sin by omission because we've not raised our empty hands of faith for the gift that is there. So we are justified, right? We we are made right with God in a moment in time when we open up the hand of faith and we receive the, the gracious salvation that God has provided. Then, as a saved person, as a true Christian, moment by moment, we're opening the hand of faith and receiving gospel grace. Not, not to justify us, that's already been done in a moment in time, but to be part of the sanctifying process, to cooperate with the sanctifying process. The Holy Spirit, also called the sanctifying spirit. Is, is when you, the first moment you awake in the morning, the sanctifying Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is waiting, ready. Open the hand of faith. Receive more gospel grace to take one more step of obedience in this new union with Christ. And when we say, nope, not going to trust, not going to rely, not, not going to open the hand, I'm going to do it myself, it quenches the Holy Spirit. The Bible says it grieves the Holy Spirit. All kinds of different ways to talk about this Turning away from God, turning away from op- the open hand of faith and self-reliance, and the Spirit's like, okay, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Open the hand. Open the ha- Ooh, open the hand of faith. He's there. He's there. In a moment-by-moment way. So how might we respond to this? I think if, if we're not a Christian, um, the message is, you need to get divorced and remarried. Today. Let's do it today. Get divorced and get remarried. I'm not talking about your earthly spouse if you're married. I'm talking about the divorcing of the old way. The old way of the law. You say, well, I, I mean, I'm not really married to the Old Testament you know, law code <laughs> like Paul's addressing here in this Romans Seven, but, but you are united with some means of attempting to save yourself. You've got some kind of functional Savior that you're married to, that you're in union with. You organize your whole life around it. It may be a romantic relationship. It may be academic success. It may be making money in your job. It may be pleasing your parents. It may be pleasure. But whatever it is, you, there's something. And, and that is the core of your life, and you are in union with, you are married to. And in order to become a Christian, you're going to have to divorce that old spouse. And it's going to feel like that, honestly. If you're, if you're genuinely becoming a Christian, it's going to feel like a divorce and a remarriage. It's that radical. But the remarriage is union with God through Christ. And, and it will bear... Beautiful, powerful, good fruit in your life. And so I would encourage you this morning to, to leave the old spouse and by faith unify with Christ. If, if that just, it's, it's sort of whetting your appetite, you're like, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I, I'm interested, <laughs> please reach out. Please talk to someone in this room. There's many people in this room who are, Believing Christians who, who would be happy to explain more about what it means to be a Christ follower. And certainly you can reach out to me or one of the staff. But please, if, if it's whetting your appetite to, to reach out, even those of you on live stream, to, to send us a message and let's talk about this 
divorce and remarriage. But if you're a Christian, how do we respond to this text? A couple of things. So one is, stop going back to your ex. Stop going back to your ex. I'm speaking metaphorically, maybe literally, who knows. Um, Again, listen to verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul's like that good friend, you know, who's talking with you and you're like, yeah, I'm thinking about going back to my ex. And Paul's going, what? Do, Do you not remember? Do you not remember the guilt and the shame and the drama and the destruction you don't remember that? Why, why would you want to put yourself in the arms of that old husband, law? Don't do it. Don't go back to the law, sin, spouse. It is, it is destructive. Um, and, and so we, we should be thinking like this when we're thinking about when we turn away from God and turn back towards sin. This is not just rule-breaking. This is relationship breaking. The Bible describes sin as a spiritual adultery. This is in the Old Testament and the New. And so when when we turn away from God and turn towards sin, we're going back to our ex. We're going back to the old husband law. But it's more than just Paul the friend warning of this. God the Holy Spirit, one one of his job descriptions is to Remind us, don't go back. This is called conviction. Right? The Holy Spirit convicts us when we're tempted to go back to anger, to go back to bitterness, to go back to laziness, to go back to greed, to go back to gluttony, to go back to obsessing over our work or obsessing over our hobbies, to, to go back to, to porn or other sexual temptation, to go back to just selfish desires in general. The, the Holy Spirit saying, no! Don't do that. Don't go back to your ex. Stay focused on your pursuit of the one who you now belong to. Don't bear fruit with your ex. Bear fruit with the one that you are now in union with. And this brings us to the second thing, I think, for the Christian, is pursue your relationship with Jesus. Christianity is, 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 is not just you know, some rules that you follow or rituals that you participate in. It's, it's really not a religion. I mean, and this is one of those passages that, that speaks to this being a, a relationship. Like this is an actual mystical union between Christ and the Christian. And so pursue that. Let, let that fire up your imagination in regard to what your Christian faith is. You have a freedom from that old husband law, and you have a freedom to pursue your relationship with Jesus. And this is being empowered by the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. You can no longer go back to the old written code of condemnation and instead embrace the new way of the Spirit. I think we could easily apply this passage to every sin under the book, right? in the book. We, we, we could talk about all kinds of specifics, um, which I just kind of gave a list of, of a few. But I, I think what Paul is, is doing for us 
more so than just getting us to think about particular sins, is for us to think and feel differently about leaving sin and pursuing Jesus. That we should think of it in relational terms, in marriage terms, such that it causes us to feel differently about sin. That it's not just, oh, Jeff broke a rule, who cares? It's all grace. No. It's spiritual adultery against Jesus. Right? And, and again, this is, this is not, okay, now you're not a Christian anymore. But this is the covenant that you're in, such that you, you ought to be motivated to pursue Jesus. And, and you say, well, how do I know Jesus is going to be this amazing husband? Right? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. I know your old husband-in-law didn't do that for you. Christ died in our place. His spousal love displayed there at the cross for the church, for you and me. Paul describing the love of husbands in Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That's the kind of husband that we now have union with through faith in the gospel. And we're reminded of that every time we come to the table. We're reminded of the spousal love of Jesus who took bread on the night in which He was betrayed, the night before His death. He broke it. He gave it to His disciples saying, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. That, that's the depths of His love for you and me displayed on the cross before we had done anything to deserve that, to respond to that. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He knew that if he was going to save us from that old covenant law and usher us into a new covenant relationship with Him, one that is from the heart, one that is a a, a union, a mystical union, He would have to go to the cross of Christ. And so when he, He went to that cross, He wasn't just thinking justification. That's definitely part of it. And he wanted to make sure our sin was taken care of. We had we could stand in the courtroom of God and be completely justified apart from law. But he was also thinking our sanctification. He was thinking, those Christians who will be justified will then be ushered into a new union whereby they will live out the Christian life moment by moment by moment. And they will be opening up the hand of faith over and over and over again and receiving gospel grace in the power of the Spirit to bear fruit of serving in the new way of the Spirit. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for this union that we have. And we confess to you, Lord, it, it, it is a, a bit surreal. It, it kind of blows our minds as we try to think about what it means to be welcomed in to an actual spiritual union with God through Christ. But God, your word says this is who we are. We should count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. 
So Lord, help, help this passage cause our thinking, our feeling to change, resulting in doing spiritually powered fruit of serving in the world, in the church, and ultimately serving you, our God and King. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for this union that, that we get to celebrate here at this table as, as, as we get to sit and dine with you, our King, our Savior, our spouse. And we thank you uh, for what this means, and we pray your blessing over it, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.